and it's movie time and we are back again welcome back uh, everyone and i hope that you're joining us on uh, our radio as well as also on our phone lines today and as usual we have our co-host kente hey kente hey how you doing doing awesome man uh i'm enjoying of course los angeles uh, i had a very busy day today i woke up very early and I've been running ever since, so I'm glad to be here with you, and looking forward to chopping it up. And tonight we have an amazing, amazing person to chop it up with, Mr. Strath Hamilton. Yeah. He is hey. not. Uh, hey, how are you doing? Great. <laughs> he is not only an Emmy-winning uh, uh, director, producer. He is the person who you want to know because he also is now a studio as well. In a worldwide entity. So, and it's like he's got an exciting new movie that is coming up that we're also going to be talking about over the show as well. That's correct. We're, uh, we're putting a movie called Ten Days in a Madhouse into theaters uh, November 11th. So, uh, we can talk about that. But, you know, fire away, kid. What do you want? Absolutely. So, tell us a little bit about your background. How did it all come together from uh, the beginnings to Triquost? Well, um, I'm kind of the Horatio Alger story in reverse. I came to America with $100 in my pocket, uh, just like Horatio Alger. And then a year later, I found myself a million dollars in debt. And I figured, well, that's showbiz, right? So um, uh, I came here. I used to uh, produce and direct music videos, um, you know, for artists like Queen and Earth, Wind and & Fire and Fleetwood Mac. And I transitioned over to movies. Um, I was heavily influenced by a guy called Robert McKee, who uh, runs a class in storytelling. And I found a voice through him um, for long-form long movie um, storytelling. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I got a job. I took my way into a job uh, as head of production for a public company called Mediacom. We started making movies back in the 80s, indie movies. And those were the days when you could make a movie for a couple of hundred thousand dollars, uh, like I did a movie called Blueberry Hill, uh, which we then, we then sold for several million dollars to MGM. And we thought, gee, this is easy. Uh, but of course, you're never as lucky as the first time you make a movie. It's always the, it's always the lucky one. Um, so from there, uh, I basically directed a, a dozen uh, movies, stories that I love uh, around the world and began to see that part of my skills was in helping other filmmakers uh, achieve uh, their goals and dreams. So we built Trico Studios and... Um, it's located now in Culver City, and it's a vertically integrated entertainment company. We have casting directors on staff, development people. We have sales forces in the international sales arena, and also now domestically, we're releasing product uh, in the U.S. marketplace. And, you know, we have post-production and financing and all the kind of good stuff you need to get movies made these days. So it's a little shop. It's about 16 people. But, um, you know, we have a good output. We're, you know, acquiring about four movies a month and we're releasing about 
the same amount around the world on various uh, platforms like theaters and DVD and VOD. Um, we look for movies, not necessarily with great big movie stars. Um, we look for movies that have a unique vision, that are different, that, that people haven't seen before. And we figure that's the best way to get noticed in a, a very crowded marketplace. So you also do your own uh, products as well as other people's as well to help out. Yeah, I mean, we produce movies. We finance and, and uh, or part finance, whatever the case may be, co-produce movies uh, with filmmakers. And um, we also acquire movies that filmmakers who just need distribution, we, we, we do that. We also just provide studio services for people who just need post-production or insurance or financing. We do... You know, lots of little parts of it, but the most important thing we do is, is get people's movies in theaters, and that's the dream. Very cool. So let's take a part, each a part of that, because it's like out of the three hats that you have to wear, I'm sure that there's one that you're extremely passionate about, and the other two that become like the animal that go, comes along with it. Well, it's kind of interesting, but really the truth is that I'm always excited by a story. A story has a way of really raising my adrenaline and getting me very excited. And if it's a story that I can really relate to, we go the extra mile to make sure the movie is produced and uh, marketed. Most importantly, I'm focusing a lot on the marketing these days. What they never tell filmmakers in film school, you know, is sure you're going to make a movie, but did you know you're going to spend the next two years of your life making sure that it gets seen by people? You know, even if that only means accompanying your movie to film festivals, you have to be aware that making a movie extends a long way past finishing and completing the movie. You know, from providing the delivery elements to working with marketing people to create trailer and key art campaigns to walking the red carpet of other people's movies so you get a chance to talk about yours to your own premiere to turning up to the theaters to watch whether people like it or not. There's so much that filmmakers need to be involved in after the production of a movie now. And what I do personally a lot is walk filmmakers through that process. I like them to be educated about what needs to happen because that gives you longer-term relationships with filmmakers if they know what to expect. Absolutely, and it also. Uh, so now, tell me, with uh, we had talked about a little bit before with a couple of other people, who would you consider to be a candidate that you would love to work with? Like, what are you looking for in the passion of that person's uh, that would make you want to collaborate with them? Uh, first of all, I like directors who don't compromise. There's. You know, two schools of thought about this. You do need people who uh, can work within, uh, you know, rules and and uh, budgets. But I'm kind of much more interested in uh, uh, directors and producers who will move mountains to get, you know, their vision onto the screen. Uh, I like to work with people with, with resources because that gives you larger opportunities. But really what I'm really focused on is people who have a unique style of storytelling and a unique vision of what literary works 
uh, resonate with people today. If you look at the big franchises that have been successful, uh, Twilight, Hunger Games, um, a lot of them have come from book franchises because there's something about you know novel authors that resonate. Um, they you know they have more words to create more depth of character and things like that. So I'm very interested in filmmakers who have a literary background and who appreciate what could be good translations to the screen from um, you know from books or comic books or other mediums. So uh, also it's like the willing to adapt from uh, popular genres in towards as well. Yeah, basically, a movie has to find its audience. It has to find its voice. So if a lot of people know about the movie already, then that's a huge advantage. Like for this movie, Ten Days in a Madhouse, let me use that as an example. It's a biopic on a woman whose name is Nellie Bly. Now, Nellie Bly was America's first undercover reporter. In the late 1800s, she worked for Joseph Pulitzer, and she checked herself into a mental institution so she could do a story on the treatment of females in mental institutions, which she very nearly didn't get out. She was drugged with opium and and beaten up. Wow. She just got out, but her story changed the way, first of all, it shut down that mental institution in New York, and it changed the way in America that we treat mental patients. So there are um, Nellie Bly associations all over the country, people that already appreciate what this woman did, and Time Magazine just recently um, uh, named her one of the top 100 women in, in American history. Uh, for what she's done for the country. So you start with something that people are already interested in. There's Nellie Bly associations out there, as I said, and these associations can form um, your grassroots campaign to get other people interested. Every movie that I take on, I look for a movie that has a way of promoting it. Um, we produced a movie called Smitty, right, which is just a dog movie. We mm-hmm. cast we cast it with uh, Lou Gossett Jr. and Peter Funder and Mira Sovino, but the grassroots following for that movie was rescue dog groups. There's over 10,000 of them in America, and we were able to use them to get the message out about the release of the movie and where it was available. So... We're doing a movie now um, called Canine World Cup, which is a kid's movie. And uh, and again, we're going to go out through people who love dogs, dog groups. So there's lots of different ways to reach a core audience. But you do have to find that core audience. Absolutely. And it's like you should be knowing who your target audience is even before you actually start putting day one of footage down there because it's like as a a writer as a producer you need to know who your target audience is to begin with yeah and you need to kind of tell them the story even if it's over a beer at at a bar you need to to connect with your audience and make sure they're going to like the story and like all of the story not just part of it you know storytelling's an active process it's not just words on a paper and i what i like about filmmakers is when they can actually 
tell the story of their movie uh, to me, sitting over a table, and get me excited that way. And I'm not alone there. I know that a lot of my compadres, like Avi Lerner and Stephen Paul, and some of the bigger independents, we all like, you know, Harvey Weinstein. We all like to sit and hear the pitch because that's where the magic is. That's where you see the passion in the person telling the story. Have you ever? Definitely. It's like you don't want to have the the story just be a dry read on a piece of paper. Um, what do you think of proof of concepts in terms of trailers as well? I think they're what what we, I would compare them to a style guide in in print media. I think they give you what the style is going to be. Uh, in in that case, they may attract an initial attention. But I've got to sit across the table from someone if I'm going to give them a lot of money to make a movie. I've got to know this person. I've got to look into their eyes. And I've got to see that they're not going to uh, uh, you know, run off and, and work to another agenda. Yeah, and which, may, uh, which makes absolute uh, sense. Kinte, you were uh, asking? Uh, no. Uh, hello? Hi. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, um, have you ever done? Has have you ever had a movie that you thought was going to, uh, it was going to go to another audience, but then when it came out, you were surprised at the audience that picked up on it, or is it pretty much straightforward? The the people that you uh, promote to is who usually gets it. Yeah, I would have to say ninety nine percent of the time. The days of there being a rich, enthusiastic, searching audience for movies, I think, you know, millennials have, are not that kind of person. They're, um, they want to make the movie their own, but they're not, you know, just out there looking for stories. They're looking for things that work with their lives. So in that sense... Have I ever seen an audience come to a movie that I didn't expect? You know, not really. Um, I mean, we had a, a fun movie. I don't know whether you saw it, Kinte. Mm -hmm. It was a movie called The Dead, and it was an African zombie movie. No, I haven't seen now, it. that was a movie that surprised the hell out of me because we thought we were going to get, you know, about 20,000 people to like it, and we ended up, you know, with hundreds of thousands of people liking it. The movie made over $5 million in the USA and, and, and lots more internationally. Mm -hmm. And what we connected with was an American audience who'd never seen uh, black zombies. This, you know, that was the uniqueness of this movie. There were slow-moving zombies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with a, a, th a th throwback to Night of the Living Dead... Um, but it was set in Africa, and it was so unusual. The landscapes were so incredibly unusual. Wow. And just having a unique African voice in the zombie genre, that's why it took off. you know. But I didn't expect it to do any, anything like the numbers that it did. Uh, so I can be surprised, but generally not by the type of audience, but by the level of their enthusiasm. Mm. Do, you, do you think this day and age that... The audience isn't as significant, uh, as sophisticated as they once were, or do you think they're more sophisticated when it comes to film and the quality that they like? I, I think that they're more discerning about what they want. I think people have compartmentalized their lives. Mm -hmm. They get a lot of entertainment in five-minute bursts mm -hmm. uh, from YouTube or Facebook or 
other places so that for them to make a 90-minute commitment to a movie, they have to know this is going to be relevant to them and resonate and have meaning, which is why my choices about the kind of movies that I choose really have to be emotional choices because I've got to know that movies will resonate with people. I think there's less, you know, kind of, um, let's say, sleuthing detective-type movies in independent movies right now because TV has kind of taken over that as a as a genre. Um, so there is a fluidity to the marketplace and you have to have an awesome movie now to relate to a millennial audience. They really mm-hmm. have to own it and you can't sell it to them. They do, you have to make them aware it's available, but they have to own it themselves. You know what I liked about the old days? And I don't want to sound like one of those old cats that, uh, you know, in my time. But there was a time where, you know, sometimes you would just go to the theater and whatever, you know, the the title or the poster, you know, like you just saw what was there. But that does not happen. It's like now with Internet and all of that, like, you know, way too much about the movie before you go see it. I, I remember even like Jurassic Park. I remember you, you didn't know what the dinosaurs looked like. I'm talking about the first one. And, um, you know, it was, they basically marketed, like, Steven Spielberg, uh, DNA, and dinosaurs. You know you want to see this. You know, (laughs) like, that's how they marketed it. But nowadays, it's like, when you go see a movie, you know everything about the movie. And it's, you know, it's, I I like the, the, back in the day when you were, you were surprised. You know, you went to go see something, and, you know, people used to go just, go to the movies and whatever was playing. But, you know, those days are gone, I guess, right? Well, I don't know. I think one one of the things I'd like to do is start a subscription channel where people don't know what the movie coming out that week is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's let's call it a brown bag movie. You know, you, you get a brown bag delivered to you and it's got a movie in it. And it might be incredible or it might not be, but the whole point about it is you don't know what you're going to get because – I think a lot of people can t- have your kind of uh, burnout on uh, knowing too much about a movie, being spoon-fed what it, you know, what it is. I mean, I know about the Star Wars movie. I know what's going to happen, and I don't have to go. Right. And it's a little sad. I think you're right. I think the magic of a movie is taken away if you over-market it, for sure. Oh, Absolutely. I, 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 real, real no, quick, you were I'm, also mentioning it's like in regards to that wonderment as well. It, when you are directing the movie versus producing the movie versus distributing the movie, um, is the decision process the same for you, or is it a little bit different in each one of those categories? Uh, it's definitely different. When you're a director, um, you become hyper focused on things that are part of the orchestra of creating the product and you know in my case I turned into a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde a lot of times because you don't have the resources in independent movies to um, you know to envision that dream a lot of the time so you have to really push people to, to get the results that you need and that's a very different decision process because the sun is setting and you've got to get the shots that's very different from being a producer where you're allocating resources or making choices about literary material uh, or putting financing together. Um, being a director is a real emotional commitment. It's a heavy emotional commitment. And, you know, I think uh, 
the data part of my life that I just, wow, I had such a great time. It's such a fabulous thing to do, to make movie after movie after movie. And it was, it was a wonderful time. I had, uh, you know, a new young family and I flew them all over the world making movies. But at a certain point, I realized that they are just movies and that for me to make a difference in people's lives, people's lives, I could uh, perhaps take a, a look at a bigger picture in the distribution world and say choices about different stories are as important as making them yourself. There's a movie that I saw that completely blew me away you know, a couple of months ago called Driving Wild Black. Mm. That's a hilarious comedy about what actually happens. It's about a pizza driver, you know, delivering pizzas. And every time he goes out, he gets pulled over by the cops, a different set of cops. <laughs> it's a really funny movie. And I'm going to devote a bunch of time and resources to bringing that movie, if I can, um, to theaters because it's such a unique vision. It's such a crazy wonderful movie and whether I take it out or someone else takes it out that's the kind of thing that I like to see I like to see a unique vision of the world and I like to bring that to people that's what's exciting to me these days well, which makes a, a lot of sense in regards to that, because a lot of people, it's like instead of so you're uh, you like also things that are not cookie cutter, oh, not yeah. uh, not sequelized that can, uh, but yet at the same time can be exploited on multi platform. I think multi platforms important. I think that people like the screen they like. Some people go to. Um, the theater, some people like, you know, their mobile phone, you know, some people like a computer. But um, so a movie has to be able to connect on in all those environments. We're also starting um, an association with Red Bull right now. They have a movie called DXM, which is an amazing movie. And what we're going to do for that movie is we're going to create events, uh, live events, um, where the movie will show on a huge screen, you know, like a 50-foot screen. Mm -hmm. But we'll also have um, parkour demonstrations. We'll have TED Talks. We'll have, you know, Oculus Riff. And we're going to do that in about 10 cities in front of the movie as kind of like little premieres. They're going to be event premieres. So that will hopefully bring in a different level of people, people who like to go to events and, and really experience things as opposed to just watching a screen. Absolutely, and it does bring in a completely different audience as well uh, towards it to get them excited as a pre-show towards the actual show. It's almost using the MGM version of having the uh, the show that happened before the show. Yeah, it's, it's exactly right. Like, I mean, we have a documentary we're releasing called Tap World. And the wonderful thing about that little movie is the producers of it get... That's the future of entertainment. That's the future of filmmakers. Involve your audience. Get them involved in your world. That's the key. So you think that virtual reality will actually start becoming then a possibility in that? Yeah, we know where this is kind of headed. I think all distribution is kind of marking time right now till holographic movies appear. I think it'll be less than five years. I think it'll be three years or four years where you're telling stories from within an environment. Um, and, you know, there's already technical.
that you'll see another major platform shift to holograms, and that should invigorate the Blu-ray market. It won't be possible on DVD, but it may be possible on ultraviolet and Blu-ray because it's a huge amount of data. But you're basically telling point-of-view stories from within a world, you know, where you could take points of view of different characters before. I think this will be a kind of different way of storytelling. But you can look for that in about three or four years. Absolutely. I'm looking forward, actually, to the very first one to see what – because it's like with the virtual world environments that have been going on in today's day and age, it's like it it can only go up from there. Things in graphics and everything will just have to get better. Yeah. Scott Ross is one of our board members. Scott Ross was uh, James Cameron's partner for a long time in digital domain. And and before that, he was at Lucasfilm. And he showed me like a five-minute test of what this looks like. And it's just mind-blowing. You know, it's just so fabulous, I can't tell you. So a lot of very clever, smart people, Spielberg, uh, you know Scott Ross, people like that are really headed in this direction, and it's a it's a major pathway to new entertainment. Absolutely, and I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going to go because it's only going to get better from there. And now, where do you go from holographic images? I think then you go to finding characters that people can fall in love with. You know, that's that's mm-hmm. timeless, but you know, creating emotional. Uh, interplay with an audience is really the secret of a great director. If they can, you know, lay in those hooks in a subtle way so people aren't realizing they're being, you know, taken into the story and and they can suspend disbelief so that they can actually have some kind of, the- you know, catharsis in the theater, then everyone's done their job and the movie will make lots of money, you know. And now, uh, I know that also in today's generation, we're also going through actually reversing our cycle where we're looking at making movies also for less amounts of money as well as also. Uh, so basically, we've separated out from that to the tent polling uh, genre. It's like, what is now considered, in your opinion, to be low budget? Well, we get movies in that, you know, they shock me. They're $50,000 movies. And, you know, I can't tell... If they're not half a million dollar movies, I, c- I can tell they're not $10 million movies. But all I really care about is that they deliver, they make people either laugh, cry, uh, you know, or be scared out of their wits. That's They're the three things they've got to do. If you can do all three, you got a hit movie. But I just had a, a movie um, that we bought that's called... Uh, a haunting uh, at the Park Hotel. And this is an entire movie done in one take, you know, much mm-hmm. like H- Hitchcock did The Rope. Uh, but it's a scary movie, and it's incredibly scary because all you ever see is what the people see. Um, and that's what made that movie unique. Uh, you know, I see a lot of, uh, of forward thinking in scary movies right now. I think filmmakers that don't have a lot of resources. Um, who are working in the scary movie environment, you know, they have a lot of potential, a lot of opportunity um, to come up with a winner, just like Jason Blum did. Yeah, and it's like horror, uh, I think horror and scary movies and thrillers will never quite go out of style. It's like what the theme is will change, but the style, uh, it's like it will never completely 
die down as a genre. Now you're dealing with body chemistry. You're dealing with adrenaline, and you know, as human beings, we're addicted addicted to adrenaline. So when we get that rush, it's uh, you know, it's addictive. You want to come back and see more. Yeah, it's like a, we've had now the years of the vampire. We've had the years of the zombies. So what do we think our next cycle is? Years of werewolves. No, I think we're going to go to ghosts. I think we're going to go to a much more, uh, we're going to enter the realm of the spirit uh, for a lot of reasons. I think people are considering that in their everyday life right now. I know millennials are kind of obsessed with, you know, what's on the other side of the death plane, what's on the other side of the solar system. You know, you know are there aliens on the planet? Have there ever been aliens? I think we're going to have scary movies about those consequences because those consequences are very real to millennials they weren't to my generation wow also i was wondering if we could talk a little bit also about the producer director relationship now that you're on the producer distribution side and you are working with directors it's understanding also that a lot of directors come from different ones like actors directors versus like let's technical directors as well in terms of styles it's like as a producer it's like understanding the business of, uh, of film how is it that it's that balance of a giving the create it's like understanding the the honoring the investor yet giving that creative freedom to the uh, to the director right we we've been successful raising investment money for movies uh to a large degree because my partners and i have um pretty much done every job that you can do on the filmmaking <laughs> process so you know we have a, a just a huge amount of experience and we turn that around and we use it to help filmmakers. Now, a lot of filmmakers don't need any help whatsoever. They've got their own teams. They've got their own um, vision. And we just sit back and, uh, you know, uh, get them a cup of coffee. Uh, that, that works. But we're also there to provide what other filmmakers are missing. Very often I find... Um, actor directors who is probably my favorite kind of director uh, are not real strong in the post-production part because they're not as familiar with that so we have a full post-production studio here so actor directors come in and you know they finish shooting their movie and they're kind of glazing at the idea of having to put this you know jigsaw puzzle together now but we make an environment where they're not worried about the stopwatch of uh, money flying out the window we we create an environment that's very creative for them and take them through the process step by step in a non-confrontational way and i think you know directors really appreciate that i think every director brings something special to a project uh i think the my least favorite kind of director is the one doing it for the money and um i've worked with a few of them and it's not a pleasant situation uh Everyone has a mortgage to make. Everyone has children to feed. But I think there are other ways to make money. Um, too much of a movie is emotion. And if there's a level of cynicism that creeps in, I see it harm, harm the movie a lot of times. And it can harm also the quality of the final, uh, in terms of the relationship when working with them on the actual set itself. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, this really strange thing, the thing that I'm really excited about 
is when I see a digital file or a piece of film, I see actual emotions somehow permeating that physical plane. How did that emotion get onto that physical plane? And it's not just the emotion that was in the script or the performance of the actors. It's also in how the crew felt. It's a, it's a kind of gestalt psychology that ends up on tape, you know, or film. And that's what's really amazing about what we do. And every filmmaker that I talk to believes the same thing. We endow a piece of physical mass with a very special energy. And nobody I know is sure how that happens, but it really happens. You, we bring something to life with that. And thank goodness you have the Directors Guild out there because that's a wonderful organization that's preserving films and preserving great visions um, for generations to come. Um, but you can feel it in your hands sometimes if you're working with a movie. It's an amazing feeling. It's concentrated emotion in these little frames. And also it helps as well to have that synthesis amongst the group. Does it also help in terms of cohesion if you kind of are combining your group as well as with the director's group? Or are you feeling that even if, as long as they are feeling part of more a team effort? Because you're also holding a responsibility to your investors as well. Right. Um, you, have to, you have to be a team player and bring a team together. Um, I think that good leadership solves all of those problems. Leadership from the director, leadership from the producer. You know, having a problem be a supportive situation as opposed to a confrontational situation is the key decision that a producer has to do. And that's a very wonderful skill set to have if you're a producer is not to turn a problem into a crisis, you know. Um, you've got to have people filled with confidence. Actors are, uh, you know, expecting to be able to work in an environment that's stress-free, and they need that environment to be stress-free. So you do have to create a very wonderful stress-free environment for people. And even if that's just, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken for lunch instead of a three-course meal, there's a way you can make people feel good about what they're doing. I don't think um, many people in our business are doing it for the money. I think they're doing it for the emotional experience. Almost like if you can have the chicken telling them that they are the wind beneath your wings. <laughs> yeah, the, the wind beneath the story's wings. Um, one thing that I insist of from everybody that I work with is that they only have one agenda, and that's to be in service of the story. Because if everybody is working on that agenda, actors, directors, art directors, cinematographers, lighting people, then a wonderful movie will be made. If there's a bunch of personal agendas getting in the way, I've seen things crash and burn on many, many occasions. So, you know, for new directors and producers brushing up on that skill set, uh, you don't have to be a cheerleader, but you do have to imbue people with confidence about that what they're doing is great. Absolutely, and making sure that you are a team player and that everybody feels part of that team. Yeah, I mean, you've got to go out of your way to make people feel part of a team. And the whole reason I came to America a long time ago right now is because I was part of a, 
American film crew that came to Europe and they picked me up as a, uh, a you know, a, a, I think an associate producer. I can't even remember now, but I fell in love with that team concept, that wonderful feeling of being part of something artistic that was, you know, just like a little troop of creative people. And so I followed it back to America. It's the wonderful thing about making movies is it makes you feel good while you're doing it. Hmm. It absolutely does. And do you also, uh, and when you're here doing movies in America, it's like also you've done a lot of co-productions outside of America as well. It's like, right. how, do you, how do you feel that it's like the two worlds mesh or it's, it's an adaptation process? Well, it's, it's really difficult and it, it gets to the point of the ridiculous. One movie I directed was called The Proposition and we had to shoot the same movie in Welsh, the Welsh language as well as the English language with different actors. So we would set and light a scene and we would move some actors in and then for the Welsh cast and then we would have to move them out and bring in the English actors, which was crazy because they wanted to have different hairstyles and different clothing and we ended up shooting the same movie twice. Wow. For that co-production. And having to dub both? Yeah, um, well, we didn't have to dub them because they were in their, you know, their main language. But it just it can get to the crazy point. Co-productions can be really crazy. I mean, you know, some people speaking some language, you know, other people speaking other languages uh, on the same set in the same script. It can get pretty crazy. But understanding that the subtext is the most important thing, and that language is just a tool to express that. You know, good directors can get great performances out of people, even if they don't understand a word. Mm. Absolutely, and because that's also key is understanding that there is that language barrier, but it's like the word itself, the actual story, it will continue. Right, and it, and it has to have meaning. Yeah, I mean, one thing you know, having said that, the words don't matter. One thing that. I really like actors to do is to get as real as possible with the accent. Nothing drives me crazier than an actor who comes up to set and hasn't prepared, you know, any kind of deep character with a background or uh, an accent, because it it you know really lets down all the other players in the uh, yeah on the on the set. But I find most uh, movies that are professional movies over you know four or five million dollars. Every actor I know really prepares hard because in your life you're only going to make 10, 20 movies. You're not, you're not going to make them endlessly. So you've got to make each and every one count. Absolutely. And now also in terms of that, it's like so when the product is uh, finally done and it's going out to distribution, where do you think that the future of distribution is heading? Because it is forever changing that new technologies are coming up and I notice that you also deal with new technologies that are coming up with that where do you think it's heading well holograms as I said are going to become very very important I think that um, movies are going to take a different part of people's lives I think they have to be rel really relative to people's lives I'm worried that we're making 15, 20,000 movies a year only you know two to three thousand of those are actually getting distribution anyway but it's still way too many movies i think we have to only make movies that that 
are really relating to an audience. Uh, I think that's the first thing that's got to happen is we've, you know, we can't keep making this many movies. Um, they just, uh, you know, they never see the light of day, most of them. Do you, do you ever um, try to relate to millennials or do you just stay to a certain age group? Well, I, I really try as much as I can every day of my, uh, my life right now to, to relate to millennials because they're the biggest audience in the world right now. They just overtook baby boomers. Um, thankfully, I have two daughters, one <laughs> Cassandra, who's a director, and one Daisy, who's a producer, oh, wow. and they both work at our studio, and I can rely on their judgment, but at the same time... I'm very, very interested in in what makes millennials uh, tick, what they want in their entertainment. Um, they're a huge uh, part of the world, and you know they're the the biggest buyer of entertainment products. So I try to reach out every day, and I make mistakes. I say dumb things, and they laugh at me. But if I don't keep trying, I won't kind of connect with them on a level to have kind of giant enormous hits which is really all anybody's ever doing in this business you have so many losses for movies that just you know lose money or break even you have to have a hit you know at least every two or three years to kind of you know keep your company going and you can't do that without millennials now hmm. absolutely as well as also being able to give to the future generations as well the ideas, uh, like for example, with your Backyard National Children's Film Festival, it's like I noticed that you have like a non-for-profit uh, there. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, um, it's back a little while ago now, but what we did was we formed a partnership um, with the Backyard National Film Backyard National Children's Film Festival, um, which was funded by the Simon family, who uh, own. Um, you know, these mega malls around the country. And what they did was they used museums all over America to start a program where kids could um, make a little movie, you know, under the guidance of the people at the museum. And they submitted these movies and, you know, we had judges in and, and the, uh, uh, you know, some of the young kids won prizes. Uh, the judging was, was held at uh, Paramount Pictures and... You know, the kids got to see their little short films up on the big screen of Paramount Pictures. It was wonderful for them. Um, that was just one way we give back. Um, we try other ways to give back as well. You know, if filmmakers have, you know, an asset that I can't get, it's like the best way to put it. If they have a friend who's a big actor, a friend who's a cinematographer, something that I can't get... I may be able to surround that with either money or studio time or some way to get the movie actually finished. And that's how we try to, to help people these days is to, uh, is to come in and give filmmakers what they don't have. Mm-hmm. And giving them uh, missing pieces and being able to help them. Absolutely. I find it's really interesting. I find actors amazing storytellers these days because they're able to both inhabit a character and then step out of that character to step behind the camera and direct a scene. And that's, you know, such a wonderful uh, set of skill sets that, you know, Orson Welles had. But, you know, I hadn't seen it for a long time and now I'm seeing it more and more and more. And it's just a great skill set. I think 
actors really need to kind of express themselves in more ways than just inhabiting characters now. And I'm welcoming that trend. It's really a great trend. The actors are becoming producers. Actors are becoming directors. Yeah, it's great. It's great to see. They're so connected to material, so you can really trust their instincts. And also it helps as well to have an acting background as a director as well to understand it from that side of the industry, the from the actual having to say the words. Yeah, it's also, you know, giving actors the intent of the scene. You've got to be able to relate to an actor on the level of the actual beats of the scene. They've got to know what they're supposed to do, what the goal is, how they're going to get there, what level of intensity they're going to play at. You have to be the conductor of the orchestra. And to do that, you have to have, I think, some level of acting background. I took, um, you know, when I grew up, my best friend was an actor. I went to all his acting classes. I, I was able to through hours and hours of, of auditing and conversations, I was able to kind of understand what I liked as a director about performances and how to make people be all on the same page at the same time. That's really, for me, a very basic set of skills that every director needs to have. You can't just be a techie guy. You've really got to understand, you know, how to get a performance out of an actor. And to understand that actor-director relationship of what each side needs yeah. in order to make that performance come forth. Yeah, I mean, the danger is if you're not invested in the emotions of the movie, you, and people are, then you, you're in a position to be a predator uh, with these actors and manipulate them. And I think all actors know that, and all actors are very afraid of that. So you've got to pretty quickly, if you're a director... Uh, relate to the actors uh, in the, within the world of the characters and let them know what they're supposed to do. you got a job to do as a director and you better do it. As well as also, uh, in its own way, the writer itself helping them get the creative involvement as well. How are you feeling on that uh, subject? Because a lot of times in today's day and age, they like having the writer be an actual creative on the set as well and have their voice thrown in on their original intent like for example Diana Gabaldon is on set with Outlander and you know Stephanie Meyer was on set with Twilight and so it's like having that actual original force. I've never seen it be anything other than a disaster and I've seen it many times and it becomes an ego struggle between writers, directors and actors and it gives actors a path um, to seek consultation without the director, so it's completely undermining to a director. I think writers who actually do that are just satisfying their own ego, that they need to work with the director ahead of time um, so that there is one you know, concise creative plan that everyone's working to. You know, to have a writer on there as a consultant out there on the set, you know, it's kind of like television. And it just, to me, movies made like that also just look like that. They look like a group decision. They don't look like anyone's personal vision. You know, um, you feel it withdraws from the voice. Oh, yeah. And the other thing is, writers have absolutely no idea how to capture things within a frame. You know, what, what level 
you know, if you're using a 28 millimeter lens or a 50 millimeter lens, it's a massive difference to a performance from an actor. You know, there's no way a writer can know, you know, with a moving camera what's going on, how to adjust a performance. It's just not within their purview. Now, if, if an actor wants to know kind of background questions to a character, well, then they can call the actor on the phone and get that stuff. But to have the actor giving, you know, creative input on the set, uh, to a writer is crazy to me. It's just, you know, it's like having the architect build the office building instead of the builder. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, and writers are fabulous, don't get me wrong. You know, that's where everything starts. But I think the time and place for their work is in pre production. I know it, it was uh, Michael Crichton who said that um, when it came to, you know, that very question, he said, the book is me. And like he was talking about working with Spielberg, like with Jurassic Park, and he was saying uh, Jurassic Park, the film is him. It's his vision. So he says that he was saying that once he wrote it and he sold the rights, he he looked forward to seeing what Spielberg or whoever did with his work, and he separated the two things. And I I really like that as a, as um, you know, I, I wish more writers uh, had that kind of mindset. Yeah, I mean, I, it's a different discipline. I knew Michael before he passed, and uh, his daughter, Taylor, is actually a very creative writer as well now. Um, but Michael had uh, a particular take on the world. You know, he was a, a physician before he was a writer, and, and he had a very unusual take on the world. And I'm not sure, even though he did direct things, that, that it his world is a very different world than a filmmaker world. You know, he's a very intellectual guy. And, you know, his characters had in the books, I'm thinking, you know, of, of Congo, for instance, you know, they had, you know, pretty good characterizations, which were internal. And that's very difficult to bring out onto a screen. Um, you know, but you work with a guy called, like Spielberg, who's a master manipulator of images and emotions, um, you know, you should let that guy do his job. That's what he's good at. Mm -hmm. I also had an interesting question, to, which brings us also in terms of that, of promotion as well, of, uh, of the films. How do you feel that places like the AFM, other film festivals that are there are really helping out the next generation filmmakers? Oh, I think there's such a disaster right now. Uh, and my if to friends will probably hate me for this, but I, I think this is so ineffective. And the reason for this is the licensing model of entertainment product is failing. It's absolutely failing. And it's not only failing, it's cratering. The numbers that I see coming back on movies without movie stars are, you know, maybe 10% of what the budget of the movie was. You can't sell movies at a place like AFM unless you have movie stars in them, which makes it very difficult for independent filmmakers. Now, what's really interesting is how did this happen? Why did the licensing model uh, fail? And it's failed because there are now, believe it or not, 110 VOD platforms just in the U.S. alone. And these VOD platforms don't license product. They just do a revenue share. So... You, as a distributor, can't put up money to buy a movie if you're not going to be able to sell it to anyone else, if you're just going to do a revenue share with a platform like Amazon or 
uh, iTunes or um, uh, In Demand, Time Warner, you know, DirecTV. All of these people are doing revenue share deals. So that's killed the licensing model. So for filmmakers to come to AFM and expect, you know, the film God Fairy to come down and bless them, it's not going to happen. Everybody is so desperate to sell their own films. They also don't want to be taking meetings with, you know, young up-and-coming filmmakers because they're trying to sell the amount of movies that they've already made a commitment to. I think that outside of the markets, physically calling on production companies and distributors in between the markets is the way to get a movie made. So taking it outside of the AFM genre and taking it to the people directly. Yeah, because everyone's kind of crazy at the market to you know, sell their own product. Why would I want to sit down with a guy t- pitching me a story when I'm, I've got numbers running through my head? I've just spent $100,000 at AFM trying to, you know, purchasing a booth and, and you know, having parties and do all of this. i got to sell product. And that's a very different mindset to buying product. You know, one's left brain, one's right brain. So most um, production companies and distributors have, you know, a process where they have development executives and people trained to make good decisions about what product to buy. AFM's just too chaotic to, you know, to be able to make good decisions. Well, which it does, uh, it's like it's understandable in regards to that. Yeah, I mean, here's, here's what you can do. As a filmmaker, the last day or two, Generally, if you've done well, you've sold out all your films by that time and you're, you're able to meet uh, filmmakers from out of town the, you know, in the last two days of the market. That kind of works, the Monday and the Tuesday. What's really crazy to me is I get people from Los Angeles coming down to the AFM trying to make appointments and I'm going, guys, I'm here 50 weeks a year. You know, I can make an appointment. I, you know, you, your office is two blocks from my office. Don't let's make an appointment at AFM. Let's get together in the meantime. Wow. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, a question I do have is this. Um, now that you've been in, you know, you've you've been in the business for quite a long time, uh, and I know you've probably seen everything. At this point, what keeps you up at night when you have a production going? What, what's the thing that you worry about the most? Uh, it's really story energy. Um a story that surprises me or a performance that surprises me. Uh, you know, it can even be a sequence of shots that surprise me about um, that's what keeps me going is finding something that's new. And there's always something new. But really it's, a, it's the emotional uh, change-up that happens within you if you're a visual person you know, when you see something very spectacular, it can be a series of colors, it can be a performance, it can be, you know, a trembling lip, something that that connects to you. That's what I love. And, you know, old, young, black, white, fat, skinny, it works for all of us. And the successful people find 
broad emotional spectrums that can connect to a lot of people. They don't limit themselves with the subject matter. Well, no, so that is something that you would also give as advice. Don't limit yourself in subject matter. Yeah, I think you choose an arena, but say you were doing a um, a movie about Black Lives Matter right now, okay? Mm-hmm. Do you want that movie to be only specifically about that topic as an intellectual exercise, as a political exercise? Probably not. What you would want to do is create people that an audience can care about and get your message through that way in the words of those characters. You've got to make an audience believe in the characters, then they'll believe in what they say. That's kind of how I feel. You you can't be restricted by, um, you know, the the place that you're working in, the politics of what you're working in. And all filmmaking is political, by the way. You You have to create characters that people believe in and then give them something to say. Yeah, and it, that is very important to have. It's like, it, and give them a voice. Exactly. So what, uh, if you're looking at the future filmmakers, what is your best advice also that you will give them? My best advice is to look at the new filmmaking process as more than just making a movie. You've got to get into the making the movie and making sure the movie gets to its audience. Filmmakers have a driving passion. They can help distributors, marketers. I mean, HBO, Showtime, they want their filmmakers involved in in helping get the movie out there. And the actors want the filmmakers to get involved in helping the movie get out there. I mean, Tim Hines, who's the director of this movie, Ten Days in a Madhouse, is constantly on the phone to PR companies, the, you know, AMC theaters, uh, anything he can do to get people to like his movie on the internet. This guy works 18 hours a day. He's tireless and he's wonderful because of it. And he's going to make the movie single-handedly make the movie a success because he's gotten at this point millions of people to like his movie and it hasn't even come out yet. So that's what I would suggest to Filmmakers don't look at the, don't look at just making the movie, but looking look at making the movie and making sure that it gets to its audience. Okay, I absolutely think that it's like this is an absolutely amazing and informative thing. Also, it's like so, Straff. How can people actually get in touch with you if they really want to talk with you? Uh, they can call me at Trico Studios here in Culver City. Um, you know, if they go to the website, tricoastworldwide.com, uh, I think our emails and our phone numbers and everything are up on that website. And you can also see the kind of movies we've bought. We've got trailers of the movies that we have picked up there. Uh, and, you know, we're pretty approachable. We've got a good team here, and, uh, and we're always looking forward to meeting new talent. Fantastic. And uh, so through uh, through the website as well as through uh, through phone, is there any other uh, ways through social media that uh, people would get in touch with you? No, I'm not a tweeter. Uh, you, <laughs> you see, it's like you and me both. It's like I'm just learning how to tweet. No, I don't <laughs> want to tweet. Yeah, I'm yeah. still challenged. 
Yeah, the the idea of containing a conversation to twenty five characters is is not appealing to me. I was very bad at haiku, you know. So I'm a bit long winded, if anything. But seriously, though, um, you know, make sure that you've got more than an idea when you make the call. Know how distributors think. Distributors want you to bring them something that's special, something they can't get by picking up the phone and calling an agent. Um, if you're an independent filmmaker, you've got to be resourceful. And you got to know exactly uh, where you're going with it and be uh, that filmmaker, the kind that you will want to work together with over and over and over again. Yeah. Because it's a marriage, a long-term marriage, not a short-term relationship. Right. And for heaven's sakes, bring a sense of humor when you come to our office. You know, <laughs> That's the most important thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's like it's uh, triply important to have that and always have a good smile on your face at the end of the day. Yeah, because it's stress central here. So, you know, there's a lot going on at any time. So, um, you know, you got to have a sense of humor. But it's a great place. You know, I like the studio. Very cool. And Kinsey, how do we get in touch with you social media wise? Yes. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I do look at it like once a week. But, um, uh, you know, it's it's just Strath Hamilton on Facebook. Uh and there ain't too many Strath Hamiltons in the world, I can tell you that. So mm -hmm. that should be pretty easy. Um, but seriously, uh, you know, just call the studio. Set up an appointment. Perfect. All okay. right. Um, Absolutely. And you can follow me at Kente F on uh, Twitter. And uh, also, to a programming note, in about 20 minutes, uh, the Infectious Geek Show will be coming up. They'll be talking about Oktoberfest. And uh, also with me, you can get me at uh, LinkedIn, goodness, Facebook, Visipedia. <laughs> um, gosh, it's like uh, I've often said is uh, jokingly so, but true. If you, if uh, it's like I'm, we're all over the, uh, I'm all over the web. If you can't find me, then you're not stalking me hard enough. <laughs> then, it, then you obviously don't. Uh, it's like because uh, it's like both. It, there's a Facebook. There's also my website, www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net. There's as well also um, SLYs can get me at Superstar, can also uh, go to Rock Against Hunger and talk with me uh, there. It's like, a, uh, it's like, yes, please feed the starving children. It's like I know it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but also remember that there are starving children all over the world as well that also need people's help as well. And uh, also great organizations as well. That uh, and so you know what it's like. This is the month. It's like obviously if it's Back to the Future month, uh, Back to the Future Day today, then you know what? Then we all have some uh, some place that we know that where our future is. Mm -hmm. There we go. And also Strath, it's amazing, amazing, amazing. Can we have you back again? Sure, sure. Happy to do it. Fantastic. Okay. And it was. It was fantastic talking with you, and I hope that you have an amazing evening. And we will be back again next week, and our guest then will be Todd Berger. All right. Great. Say hi to Todd for me. He used to be my agent. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Good. Take care. Thank you. All right.